I think we're about to wrap that up. Uh, I'll say it again, it's, it's uh, like genuinely an honor to be with you all. Uh, we've gotten to know a lot of your people over the last couple of years. Believe it or not, we got LA people to come to South Bend, Indiana uh, like two years ago, and some of your crew was hanging with us there, and then we were all partying in Denver last October. Uh, so anyway, thanks for having me. I know most of you had nothing to do with it, but you're stuck with me now, and we're just going to go for a little bit, okay? I want to show you uh, an image that you might be familiar with. It may not feel connected to what you just talked about, but we're going to get there, I promise. Has anybody been here? Josh, can I throw that first one up? The suspense is very strategic here. I just really want you all waiting for it, you know. Or, um, or imagine, if you will, <laughs> that on the screen right now you see an image of the 9-11 memorial in New York City in lower Manhattan. Anybody been there? Yeah, yeah, it's, it's like striking to stand at that, right? I actually like uh, stumbled into it one day when I was walking through Lower Manhattan, didn't know that I would land there. But if you've been there, you know that the, the actual footprint of the two buildings that came down on 9-11 in New York have been turned into these uh, waterfall memorials. And you stand at their edges and they're quite dramatic and they kind of go down into the earth. And the architects uh, actually called those two memorial fountains the voids. He says they're there to render absence visible. And I remember the first time I saw them, I thought, this is interesting because we might not have done that with that loss. Now, I think it'd probably be pretty weird if we didn't do something with what happened at 9-11, but like as a metaphor, so often when we lose things, we don't give witness to what we've lost. We paper over it. Like the metaphor there would be like, instead of building the voids, what if we just like paved over the site? just to pretend that nothing had ever happened there, because who wants to remember that, right? Or maybe like we build like on the actual footprint of those buildings, just something bigger and better and more beautiful, which is actually exactly what we did right next to them in the New World Trade Center Tower. But imagine right there on the footprint, we just built something bigger, shinier, better, which I feel like would kind of be our way of saying to like our enemies, you can't hurt us, we'll just build back better, right? But it probably would also be a way of saying that to ourselves. Because I think when we lose something that matters to us, it, like, it kind of rattles us, right? It can leave us feeling impotent, um, vulnerable in a way that we don't want to be. And so often our strategies for grief are really ways of avoiding grief. But there at 9-11, we didn't do that. We built the voids to render absence visible. And the reason I'm starting there after a question about change is uh, loss is a part of every human season, of course, right? We lose dreams, we lose jobs, we lose relationships, we lose certain arrangements that felt really good until they disintegrate on us. Some of us lose versions of faith that felt really good for a season and then they kind of just slip through our fingers and they're gone. We lose the lives of actual loved ones and there's just like that void there and we have to wonder what we'll do with that. So loss is part of every human season, but I think uh, really the, whenever change is escalated, there's more loss involved because loss and change are connected. And the last few years I think have brought extraordinary change whether it's the way that pandemic life disrupted everything or economics or like things happening in our politics. I think a lot of us just feel the change. 
And if you feel change, what you're also feeling is loss, and we've got to figure out what to do with it. There it is. Yeah. Uh, so I want to talk to you about that a little bit today, both because I think we've been through a lot of change, which brings with it a lot of loss, and because there's a, a word that Jesus gives um, early in his big teaching in Matthew, where he does this big Sermon on the Mount thing, which is like his greatest hits. There's a word that he gives in the beginning of that that's been working on me for quite a while, and I just kind of want to share it with you in case it can help you today. Uh, the word I'm talking about is a blessing that Jesus gives. Uh, you, you ever heard of those Beatitudes, right? Blessed are the poor in spirit, etc. I want to zoom in on Matthew 5, 4, the second blessing that he gives. He says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Now, I've, I've come to think that Jesus is, is kind of tapping into a deep well of his own people's wisdom when he says this. Let me tell you what the well is that I'm referring to. I'm talking about the book of Psalms. I know most of us are probably familiar. Greatest hits include things like, the Lord is my shepherd, right? Lots of embroidered pillows uh, with some psalm stuff, right? But really, what you have in the Psalms is um, a sort of landscape of the soul. Uh, there was a, a North African bishop who said that in the Psalms, you have a mirror showing you every part of yourself. Uh, later, a lawyer in Geneva named John Calvin, he said that the Psalms are like the anatomy of your spirit or your soul. The whole terrain within you of spirit and emotion and relationship is all sort of there on the page in the Psalms. So if that's true, um, and you can decide for yourself if you think that's true, but if that's true, then it's interesting to observe, uh, kind of take a step back and look at the whole landscape. And if you do that, some interesting things start to emerge. So this is like, just kind of like, Biblical Studies 101 stuff that people have noticed. The first thing that's interesting is that a guy named Gunkel said there's like three kinds of prayers, basically, in the book of Psalms. Three, three sort of big movements. Uh, the first one is really simple. It's praise. God, you're great. Now, you may not be feeling that. It may not be like normal for you to like get out of bed and be like, God, you're great, whatever. But that's the feeling that you have when everything just kind of fits together and you know your place world and up is up and down is down and you know how it all fits together. So regardless of whether you relate to God, you're great, maybe you relate to like those days when it all holds together quite nicely, right? Well, there's, a, there's a second mode of prayer in the Psalms and it feels pretty similar. It's Thanksgiving, which starts out the same. It's like, God, you're great. But the difference is in Psalms of Thanksgiving, the reason that you're praising God is that God has done something to put things back together. So it's sort of like, man, everything was hell for a moment, but now things are, are better again. Or like the ground was breaking beneath my feet, now I've like found new solid ground to stand on. And so you pray a prayer of thanksgiving, or maybe you don't, but you know the feeling, right? When you've just come through it and you're on the other side. And then there's a third mode, a third movement there, and these are psalms of lament. These are the ones that like ache, that bleed cry out, right? Now, what's interesting is if you look at these three kinds of psalms, and you kind of add them all up, and you're like, how much of that landscape is in the mode of praise, and how much of that landscape is in the mode of thanksgiving, and how much is in lament? What's really interesting is lament's actually the biggest part of the landscape in the psalms. There are more prayers of lament than any other kind of in the psalms, which is like fascinating to me. Let me give you like a little taste, just so you can like get the melancholy emo mojo of these particular kinds of prayers. Josh, can we show those next three slides here? This is a, this is a psalm of lament. The psalmist says, "You crushed us and made us a haunt for jackals. You covered us over with deep darkness." Or how about this next one? You've shaken the land and torn it open. Mend its fractures for its quaking. You've shown your people desperate times. Or this one from Psalm 74. We are given no signs from God. No prophets are left. And none of us knows how long this will be. At this point, the psalmist has even like stopped talking to God. We're just like, we're done now, right? We're just going to like talk about God because none of this is working out, right? Side note, like I imagine like 
like, I don't, I don't know how many of y'all ever, like, pray with other people or, like, do you do prayer at dinner or whatever, but, like, I imagine you, like, showing up for, like, group prayer time, like, popcorn style, right, and you just kind of, like, bubble up whatever you want to pray, and I dare you one time to say, Lord, you have made us a haunt for jackals. Just see what happens, right? Because, of course, like, we're not very comfortable with this, like, raw, naked lament stuff, right? I mean, whether it's, like, church spaces that you've been in or, like, family systems or social settings, like, often the kind of spiritual communities that we develop, like, just aren't really comfortable with this kind of raw, naked lament. And it's kind of sad. Not only is it sort of cutting ourselves off from something that's there in a text that I think a lot of us love and trust for good reason, but it's also a way of, like, cutting ourselves off from a really powerful and deep wisdom in those prayers of lament. And it's sort of evidenced when you, when you read those prayers. So when you look at Psalms of Lament in the book of Psalms, almost all of them follow the same really, really basic two-part movement. It's super straightforward. First of all, they lament. They do the things you just heard, like, God, you've made us a haunt for jackals, or you've abandoned us, or you were there for others, but you're not there for us. And then after they name the lament, the other thing they do is praise. So the psalm that begins, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, which you might know that's the prayer Jesus prays on the cross. That same psalm, which at the beginning says things like, you were there for everybody else, but you've not been there for me. I'm kicked over and poured out. I'm a worm in front of the people. That's how it starts. And then just like five verses later, it says, um, from you comes the theme of my, play, pray, my praise. I will declare your name in the great assembly. Now, I don't know how you all feel about that. I don't like it. Um, that like quick movement where like for half a second you're honest about what's going on and then you wrap it up, put a bow on it, you know, put a smile on your face, say the right thing. It feels like really pious to me in a way that doesn't feel good, if I'm being honest. And I think part of that's because I've grown up in some religious settings where that was used in a really toxic way, right? This is that kind of like faux sentimental greeting card BS spirituality that pretends to be honest about what's really going on, but then uses spirituality to like bypass all that stuff and just like put a bow on it. It's the same kind of thing that like, you know when you've been something absolutely awful in your life, you, like you, you're really through it. You're, um, you're in hell on earth for that moment. And a well-meaning religious person comes up to you, and they're like, yeah, but you know God is good. And it's like, not right now, man. Like, can we just stop with it for a second, right? I've felt that before, and I think that's why I have this kind of, like, wrestling match. I, I've known people who can authentically make the turn from lament to praise very quickly, and that can be beautiful for them. But I've known more of us who are just told that's what we're supposed to do. And so we make the move, and then we leave our own heart behind and wonder why we can't find it anymore. So I had a hard time with this until I remembered that often in spiritual texts, what happens is they express in microcosm something that actually takes much longer. So just because like on the page, it's like verse 1 is lament and verse 5 is praise, it doesn't necessarily mean that like we're meant to move that quickly there. So if you leave that kind of timing behind, you could just get curious about it. And you could say, like, is there something about lament that actually leads us into an expanded capacity for wonder or praise? And that's a question I've been learning about, especially through the experience I've had the last few years. Uh, so I want to tell you uh, about my friend Alex. Uh, Alex and I became friends in college. Uh, quickly, like, fell in love with this guy. He's, like, unfailingly kind and effortlessly cool. You know the type, right? It just kind of works for them. Uh, after college, I bought this shabby old house in South Bend, a three-bedroom house, and got seven of my friends to move in, uh, which I think is kind of an L.A. move as far as I'm, as, as I'm understanding. 
Uh, so anyway, Alex and a bunch of other buddies were living in this shabby old house, and we did all the, like, the things that you do in your 20s. He and I had both attended this very conservative private Christian college, and so we wanted to make up for lost time on our vices, right? So like we'd sit on the roof and smoke like just really awful convenience store cigars, you know? Or we'd go down to this pub in downtown South Bend and try to like catch up on all the beer consumption that we'd missed out on in college. And we'd sit there over our like pints of really, really crappy beer because we weren't ready for real beer yet. And we would just like talk about all these big questions that we were wrestling with, you know? Uh, at that time, Alex like, had all these energies and you could tell like he wanted to do something with them. He's working construction after college, but he wanted like a bigger dream. And then he found it one day. I come home to the house and he's waiting for me. And he takes me up to his room and on his computer screen, he's pulled up the website for this fledgling nonprofit. And their mission was to raise awareness and activism on behalf of the child soldiers in Joseph Kony's war in Central Africa. So he gets like wind of this vision and he's gone, man. He, he goes out to San Diego where they're based and he becomes part of this whole operation. And pretty soon he uh, enters the part of the operation where they reach out to artists and they're really good at this. So there was a season where like all the biggest rock stars are using their platforms to help get the word out about this cause. And Alex was one of the couple of guys there who was doing all that outreach with the artists. And so I would get these dispatches from like backstage green rooms and tour buses with my favorite rock stars. And it, it's just like everybody fell in love with that same effortless, cool, and unfailing kindness in Alex. Uh, one day, like this is classic Alex for you. He's out there on the road, but I get this package in the mail and I open it and it's just a book. And it's written by this philosopher, Aristotle. It's called Nicomachean Ethics, which doesn't matter at all. But in the book, the philosopher uh, is talking about friendship. And he says there's like different kinds of friendship and there's lesser forms and better forms of friendship. And he says the better form of friendship is when you're drawn to the good in your friend, the virtue in them. Like you see something in them you believe in and you want to see more of it. And all he had done was drawn a bracket around that paragraph with an asterisk next to it, which is a typically cool way for Alex to do something really kind, right? So we stay in touch over the years through like flights and, and phone calls and all that stuff. And one day he falls in love uh, with someone, Beth, who's living in Nashville, whom he would marry. So he moves to Nashville to be with her, and he starts asking me randomly, like, hey, bro, you going to be in Nashville uh, in a month? And I'm like, no, Alex, why would I be in Nashville in a month? But he was trying to kind of slip in an invitation for me to officiate their wedding. So not long after that, I'm down there in Tennessee on this gorgeous afternoon outdoors under this massive old Tennessee tree, and I get to watch them make their vows to each other. And then not long after that, I'm back home in South Bend, and I get this text from Alex, and it says, Hola, amigo. Thought you to meet the newest mini-member of our family. And then he sends me a picture of the ultrasound of their first child. So we like, hop on the phone, and we're celebrating together. And I could just like feel that, like, that same Alex who was out there living this really big travel adventure was now finding joy and like, digging roots and building a family. You could kind of feel that with him, right? And that's what made the next thing, like, even more confusing and, and um, impossible. So I get a text from another buddy just like a month after that, and he says, hey man, you have a minute? I call him, and he says, are you alone? I say, yeah, and then he tells me that Alex has died by suicide. And in that moment, like, I just remember the impossibility of it. I remember like the words traveling out of the phone speaker and like bouncing off my eardrum because like they couldn't get in, you know? There's like a couple of days there where I, like, I literally, like, I was incapable of, like, recognizing the reality of what had happened, right? But then after a couple of days, I had to travel to New York City for work. And so I'm wandering the streets of lower Manhattan with my friends where, coincidentally, we bump into that void. And the, the numbness starts to wear off. 
uh, and this just tidal wave of grief, just like, I mean, it's like nausea, right? It just like comes up from within and consumes me. And so I like kind of awkwardly dismiss myself and go back to my hotel room. I actually remember my brother calling me and I just remember saying like, I didn't know it was possible to hurt this badly. Um, about a week later, I traveled down to Nashville. Uh, his wife had asked me to speak a eulogy on Alex's behalf at the funeral. And I remember like the night before, I'm, I'm staying on my buddy's couch in East Nashville with this blank yellow legal pad in front of me. And I'm trying to figure out like, what the hell do you say, you know? I knew that people were gonna be like flying in from all over the world for this kind of unexpected congregation for one moment. And I have all these instincts. I've been a preacher for 20 years because I started when I was five. And like you develop these kind of instincts, right? And often the preacher's instinct is to try to explain something, to try to kind of make sense of it, right? Like, hey, help me, let me help you this together, right? But like as those instincts tried to kick in, I could just feel how wildly inappropriate that would be. Like that's not what this moment calls for because there's not making sense of it. That's not what you do with something like this, right? And man, I got rattled with a level of like, I felt so impotent. I'm like, what, like, what am I supposed to do? There's like a thousand people showing up and they're gonna hand me the mic and I'm supposed to do something right now? But after getting rattled and I kind of prayed with a desperation that I don't think I've prayed with often in my life and it kind of unnerves me right now, I, I kind of felt this new clarity breaking in and it had a little something to do with that void in New York, which was like, Jay, I think your only job is to give witness. Just to say, hey, here's who Alex was. You just give witness. That's, that's all you do. You can't fix it. You can't heal it. You can't change it. You can't do anything about it. But you can give witness to what was lost. And then everything else is out of your hands, right? The next day, I get to the church, and I have um, Alex's wife, Beth, on my arm. She's very pregnant at this point. She's walking down the aisle with me. And I have uh, Coloco, their German shepherd, whom Alex loved as much as he had loved anything or anyone. She was actually with us there in the service, and we sat down in the front row, and then the time came for me to get up there and um, turn and face that impossible room. Uh, every pastor I know has, like, spoken in hard situations. That's just kind of par for the course. I've never seen anything like that sea of anguish in that room, you know? Um, but I kind of just tried to, like, steal myself and say, okay, you're just here to give witness, you know? And so I told him about, you know, meeting Alex in college, and I told him about that sort of effortless, cool, and unfailing kindness. I told him about how um, we would go down to that Irish pub on Monday nights, and we would work out all of that kind of, like, adolescent angst that we were still sorting through. Uh, I told them about my, my dog, Jack. So I had this 90-pound golden retriever when we were living together, just all, like, hair and love, you know? And I told them about how, um, like, anytime Alex entered a room where Jack was, or anytime Jack entered a room where Alex was, it didn't matter who else was there. It was just that Alex, and only Alex, only always Alex, Jack would run toward Alex, and he would offer a particularly inappropriate display of canine dominance and affection. <laughs> yes, I'm telling you, Jack would always hump Alex, only Alex, always, always Alex. It's like even Jack had a crush on Alex, you know what I'm saying? I told them about what it was like for him to find that sense of mission um, when he went out to that organization. I told them what it was like for him to watch him fall in love with Beth, and I told them how he'd already become a loving uh, father to that child that Beth was carrying. 
and together we just kind of told Alex that we loved him and we missed him like mad, you know. A couple of weeks later, um, the funeral would continue out in San Diego. The group that had sort of worked with that cause was largely still rooted there, and they wanted to do something to honor him too. And I wasn't going to go. Um, I didn't know a lot of people in San Diego. Uh, I didn't have the money for the flights. Um, also, the week after Alex's funeral in Nashville, our family was on the waters of Lake Erie scattering my grandfather's ashes. And it's just like, how much grief can you work with at one time, right? But really, if I'm being most honest, the biggest reason I wasn't going to go is it just felt inefficient. You know? And I, I think, like, we are, like, steeped in the modern era, like, looking for efficiency. You know, like, can you fix it? Like, is going to San Diego going to fix it? Well, then don't go, right? At least that's kind of like what it felt like to me. But then one of the guys who was organizing those events, um, he asked if I would come out and say a few words. And so I booked my flights and I make it out there. I'm so glad I did. Uh, one of our rituals there was a reflection of Alex's love for surfing. And so, you ever done a paddle out? Is this something you're familiar with? Uh, I guess it comes from surf culture. A bunch of us on this really dark day in La Jolla met up, like dozens of us, and grabbed some surfboards and just like paddled out on the ocean together. Beth, who, again, very pregnant at this point, makes it out there on a kayak. And we just sort of like held each other with our boards and this kind of improvised flotilla. And we sang some songs and we told some stories about Alex. And then we kind of fanned out into a ring on the water. And then Beth had been wearing this lei in honor of Alex. And she took it off and she threw it in the middle of the water. And we dug our hands in and kind of splashed in an act of love and honor for Alex. And I remember like in that moment when we're splashing, I remember like having this like peripheral feeling, like right on the edge of my awareness, you know. It's like some, something's going on here in me that I think is going to feel like healing later. I didn't really know what it would be. I just could feel it, you know. Uh, so now we're getting to the part of the story that's really, really awkward for me to tell. And it's awkward because, like, I don't know if there's a way for me to convey. Like, I'm, I'm honestly kind of terrified that this is the part of the story where, like, my actual experience, I don't know how to, like, mediate it to you in a way that you'll know why it mattered to me. But I'm just going to have to trust you all with that. And you can do with it what you want. Um, but then that night, the best way I can tell you is... Um, while we were just like racked with grief, the sky over La Jolla was absolutely set on fire. I've seen like lots of beautiful sunsets. You have too. This was like something categorically different. Um, I mean like, it was like electricity in the air. I have to reach for, like, poetry to explain it. It felt like something was, like, cracked open in the universe and, like, the secret was being let out, you know? And it was, like, radiating, like, from that sky, like, toward me. And I found myself, like, shouting and weeping. But it wasn't just, like, sadness. It was something different, actually. It was more like a feeling of profound presence. Like a fullness just out of nowhere, like, resting me, you know, like, seizing me. And somehow, like, that experience um, is the best way I understand these strange psalms that move from lament to praise. Because, like, the word for what I saw in the sky, like, the best word I can give it isn't beauty, even though it's beautiful. The best word I have for it is glory. 
And the feeling I had wasn't just rapture or intensity. The best word I have for, like, what erupted out of me was praise. And I've really come to think that these things are really deeply connected. So let me go back to the Psalms for a minute and talk with you just a little more about what I think might be going on there. And this is just my theory. You can tell me I'm wrong, and you might be right. Here's my theory, though. Um, I think these ancient voices, they just lived with a fundamentally different relationship to the world around them than the one that you and I have with the world today. They, they had the, what's sometimes called a sacramental imagination. Um, they reflect it in the Psalms. Let me show you a few examples on the screens here. Um, they say things like, the heavens declare the glory of God. Maybe you've heard that before, but like sit with that for a minute. That like divinity is on display in the sky above you right now, right? Or how about this one? You've made humanity a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. As if to say like divine glory is residing in the person you are sitting next to right now. And you too, right? Like divine glory radiating in your body and your life right now, right? Or how about this next one? Deep calls to deep. I've sometimes thought that what they mean is like there's a depth within you that senses the depth around you. You know what I'm talking about? It's more than what you taste and touch and see and smell and hear. Even though it, it shows up in the things that you taste and touch and smell and see and hear, there's more to it than that. There's, a, there's like a radar within you. There's a frequency sensor within you that senses the deep around you. And I think that the, that the mourning that we feel when we lose someone is more than the inconvenient loss of a psychological attachment, even though it's also that. I think it's the deep in you mourning the loss of the, of the deep in them. It's the glory hunger mourning the loss of the glory in them. But then what I've come to believe is that like through acts of lament, through ritualizing, through giving witness to what we've lost, what you're really doing is you're actually amplifying your connection to the deep within you, right? And, it, and it's murder for a moment. It's like a raw nerve ending exposed. Which is why, of course, we want to numb it and medicate it and avoid it and ignore it and do everything we can to pretend that that's not there. But when you do that, you're cutting yourself off. Because like the very same sensory apparatus in you, the deep in you, that's, that's the source of that great pain, is also the place within you that's going to discover that maybe, just maybe, if it was good, if it was beautiful, if it was true, if it was of God, it's not destroyed, it's just been transformed. That somehow a healing is going to come to you when you realize that the good and the true and the beautiful, the things that are of God, if, if they are of God, they can't be destroyed. They've just been transformed. And somewhere deep inside, you're going to know it. I don't necessarily mean with your brain or your theology or your analytics. I just mean the deep in you is going to know it. And I think that's a little bit of what was happening for me there. Now, um, if this sounds strange to you, I get it. I'm actually not prone to woo. I live in the Midwest. We don't really do woo in Indiana. Um, I know this is pretty woo, right? Um, but I've also come to believe, like, the longer I try to live a life with God, the more I believe that if it's not strange, it's too small. All these beatitude blessings are so strange, you all. Like, he says, um, like, I bless you when you have a poverty within you. But that word blessing, like, don't, don't let that be cheap. Don't let that be, like, Christian bookstore nonsense. Blessing, when he says that, like, in the original language of his voice or the written text, he's saying uh, two, two, two categories. One... I, I declare you have a divine insurance policy against suffering, which is the Hebrew understanding of blessing. You have a divine insurance policy against suffering when, when you have a poverty within you. Well, that doesn't make any sense. Uh, in the Greek imagination, which is the way the text is written, he's saying you are living in the blissful existence of the deities. That's the, the blessing category for the Greeks. When you mourn. 
He's saying that like when you ache for things to be made right in you or around you, whether it's like your circumstances or the systems that are breaking us, like when you ache for it to be made right, which is hungering and thirsting for righteousness or justice, he says you're blessed. That's absurd. But I've come to believe it's the only thing I trust. Like if it's not strange, it's too small. And this stuff is strange, but I think that's where the mystery is. And that's what's been healing me. And so... Um, I'm here to tell you, like, if you lost something, you got to give witness to it. you got to build a void. Whether what you lost was a dream or a relationship or a faith that was beautiful for you for a season, but it slipped through your fingers, or if what you've lost is an actual loved one or economic certainty or a future that you were hoping for, if you've lost something, you got to give witness to it. And you can do that however you want. You can write a letter to it. You can build a monument to it. You can paddle out on the water. You can write a song, but you got to give witness to it because when you do that, you're honoring the deep within you. And when you do that, I think you're going to find out the deep around you has not been lost. I have um, come to believe that Alex is held and healed in the love of God. And I don't just like think that, I, f I feel it. And I've come to believe that when we mourn, we are also held and healed in that love, which is why we gotta do it and we gotta do it bravely. It's also good if we do it together. Um, I wanna turn it back to y'all for a minute and give you a chance. I know this can be a little tender, um, but I also have uh, been assured that you all are like kinda up for this kind of thing. And so, uh, way to go, New Abbey, way to be brave. Um, if you want, why don't you take a minute here and turn to each other. And the question is this, simply, is there a loss that you want to name or give witness to today?